just about every single night, uh, well, I should say probably not every single night, maybe every other night or probably every third night or so, Rylan and I will take out this little yellow book that has children's catechisms in it, and we will go through those with Bauer. Now, catechisms is just a big high-dollar word for oral teaching, so we literally are saying these questions to him, and they have these very short and succinct answers to them so that kids can remember them. And at his age, he's like a sponge. He remembers just about everything. So it's been amazing over the years that we have been doing this just to see what he can retain. And at this point in time, he probably doesn't really know much about what he's saying uh, yet anyways, but one day my, my prayer and my hope is that he's going to be able to put all these pieces together and to realize why we were doing this with him. But I remember going through these questions. One of the, one of the questions that really sort of stuck out to me was number three um, in this children's catechism, and it was, why did God create all things? And the answer a couple of years ago for Bauer was for his glory. But now he's five and he's a big boy, so it's not goy anymore, but it's actually glory. And so I remember going through that question with him, and the first time I'd heard it, it, I really began to think to myself, okay, what does that actually mean? God created all things for his glory, for his glory. And I began to think about that. And I began to try to figure out, okay, how does this work? Like, what does it mean, the glory of God? Or what does it mean to to glorify God? Because in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, it says the chief end of man is what? It is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So what does it mean that we were created for his glory? What does it mean to glorify God? Those seem to be a lot of times sort of cliche answers for ministries. Well, we're here to glorify God. Okay, well, what does that actually look like? What does that actually mean? Practically, how does that work? And so that's something that we want to look at today. And those are some questions that I want to try to answer. Why do we glorify God? How do we glorify God? What are some struggles that may come up or some situations that may come up? What does that look like practically? And I'm not going to be able to answer all of these questions completely today because that would take forever. But at the same time, maybe I'll be able to at least begin that thought process in your own minds of what that looks like. So we're going to look in two different places today. We're going to look in Exodus in the Old Testament, and then we're going to look in 1 Corinthians in the New. So let's start with Exodus first and foremost, and we're going to be at Exodus chapter 13, verse 20, and we're going to go through 14, 4. Exodus chapter 13, verse 20, and then we're going to go through uh, chapter 14, verse 4. And we're going to be on page 56 in your pew Bibles. If you do not own a Bible, there is a black Bible in front of you, and we're on page 56 in that Bible. And if you do not own a Bible, that is a gift from us here at Perimeter Road as we try to continue to penetrate the culture in Valdosta, Georgia. So that's yours to have if you do not own a Bible. So Exodus chapter 13, starting in verse 20. 
It says, and they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. Now, let me just throw you a little bit of context and background here, okay? The ten plagues at this point in time have already happened. The Israelites, the people of God, have been enslaved, and now they have been let free uh, because of what God did and because of that, that final plague, right, of the firstborn child being Killed, And so now they have been let go, and now they are going to go into the wilderness and ultimately go towards the promised land. So that's where we're at right now. That's what's happened up to this point. So when it says, and they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Ephraim, it's talking about the people of Israel who have been enslaved there uh, from Pharaoh and by the Egyptians. And then verse 21, it says, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So here you are, you have this pillar of cloud by day, and then you have this pillar of fire by night which is a way that God would show his glory in the Old Testament. You have them leading these hundreds of thousands, some people say possibly millions of people, from captivity in Egypt. Now they're going through the wilderness. So here's Moses with his staff following this pillar of cloud or this pillar of fire, and they're going through this wilderness. And then they get to chapter 14, verse 1. And the Lord instructs Moses to do something that I think is very interesting. Turn with me, or look there with me, if you will. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahirath between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zaphon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. Now, that's a little interesting. Did you catch it? The Lord just instructed Moses to do what? To turn back didn't he? Why did God tell Moses to turn back in the midst of going to the promised land when you've got the most powerful army in the world at the time bearing down on you? So here we are, imagine just with me just for a second, you've got a million people walking this way and then all of a sudden, wait, hold on, turn back. Do you think that's easy to do? No, it's not at all, is it? They've got to gather all their things and all their stuff, all their kids. And where does he tell them to go? He tells them to go between Pi-Hirath, between Migdal, and what? And the sea. So now, not only is he telling them to turn back, but he's also telling them to encamp between the sea and who? The enemy, right? So basically, if that enemy comes with the 600 chariots, as it talks about, further along in chapter 14, and all of his men and the most powerful army in the world, they're going to be trapped, aren't they? And there's going to be nothing that they can do about it. And do you think Pharaoh's mad? His firstborn son has just been killed. Do you think he's a little upset right now? Yes. But yet God tells them to do this. So why is God, the question becomes, why is God telling them to do this? Why doesn't he just get them to the promised land as quickly as as possible. What's going to tell us here? Look with me, if you will. It says, For Pharaoh will say to the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. 
and I will harden Pharaoh's heart. So Pharaoh will begin to think that, oh, these people don't know where they're going. They're sort of wandering in the wilderness. They're lost. And guess what? At the same time, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart, and that's going to make him really mad, and he's going to be coming for you even more. And then the people, they begin to do what? Later on in chapter 14, they begin to question God. God, were there not enough graves in Egypt? Like, why are you doing this to us? Why are you turning us back? Why are you sitting us here by the sea? To where we're entrapped and the most powerful army in the world at the time is about to bear down on us and kill us all. Why did you allow us to leave that captivity just to get us killed here on the edge of the Red Sea? And what does he say? And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And what will happen? And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord and they did So, he did all of this for his glory. The reason that you were created was for God's glory. You've got to understand something. Pharaoh could care less about God. Pharaoh, in his eyes, he was a God. He had his people bowing down before his feet. And not only was he a God, but he also worshipped other little G's as well. That's what the ten plagues were, wasn't it? It was sort of a spit in the face of the other little G's, the other little gods that Pharaoh worshipped. Oh, you think that God is the one who controls this? Uh-uh. I'm going to do this to you. <laughs> oh, oh, you think that? No, no, no. Watch this. And so here's a man who claims to be God himself, who has his own people bowing down before his feet. And not only has his own people doing that, but has also had the people of God doing that as well. He's been enslaving them and torturing them and beating them and getting them to make bricks and getting them to gather their own straw for the bricks. And now God is about to do something so amazing. He's about to get this man Moses to raise up his staff to part this Red Sea. They're going to walk, all one million of them, however many there were, on dry ground. And then that army with the 600 chariots and all those thousands and thousands of men are going to walk in and they're going to, the water's going to be closed And they're going to die. And guess what? God's people are going to turn back and look at that and say, God's glory has been shown through that. We worship the true God. The one true God. This is the God that controls everything. This is the God that is more powerful than the most powerful army in the world at the time. That he could take a man who stutters and lead him through the desert and take these slaves and cause them to cross through the sea on dry ground and then close the waters down over the most powerful army in the world. And they're standing there on that sea, looking at that, seeing that happen and say, wow, that's my God. He is who he is. And there is no greater And he will get the glory. You know, a question that came up as I was reading through this in uh, Exodus and I was looking at it was, okay, we are called, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Well, a question that just sort of came up in my mind was, who does God glorify? Who does God glorify? Well, the the answer may seem a little selfish, 
may see a little prideful and may seem like it's sinful in some way, but yet it's not at all. God glorifies himself. When you have the perfect, holy, righteous, loving, just God, there is no one greater than he. The only person that he can glorify is himself. And so we've seen here how in Exodus, how God has shown his glory through the killing of Pharaoh and his army who had continually rejected him. Well, now I want to give you an example of in our own lives how we can glorify the Lord if that's the chief end of us, if that's the main purpose, the main goal. So turn with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians. And we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It's on page 958 of your pew Bibles. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to be looking at verses 23 through 11.1. Scripture's broken up that way, uh, which is interesting. That it took in verse 1 of chapter 11, but that's what it did. It's on page 958 of your pew Bibles. First Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 23. It says, all things are lawful, but all things are helpful. And let me just give you a little bit of background about what's going on, because it's going to make a lot more sense if I do that. You've got to understand Corinth at this time. It is located in Greece. You sort of have no- northern Greece, you have southern Greece, and then you sort of have the middle part, which is sort of a very thin strip of land between two bodies of water, and that's where Corinth was located. And Corinth at the time was a hub of commerce, it was a hub of trade, it had a lot of money coming into it. And not only did it have a lot of money coming into it, but that means there was a lot of people that were going through and visiting the city. A lot of times there would be boats that literally would get picked up onto dry ground and pulled over to the other bay that was there so that they wouldn't have to go around Greece because it would take so much longer to do that. But at the same time, with all of these people and all of this money and all of this wealth that was in Corinth, the the church at the time was struggling because that means a lot of religions were coming into here as well. And so it was said that there was about 26 temples uh, in Corinth at the time. There was the god of Apollo, which is the god of music. You've ever heard Showtime at the Apollo? That's where they get that from. There was the goddess of Taish, which was the goddess of good luck or fortune. But the biggest temple that was there, the temple that sat on top of the mountain that overlooked Corinth, the Acrocorinth, they called it, was the goddess of Aphrodite. If you've heard the word aphrodisiac, it was the goddess of love and sex. And it was stated by a historian during that time that this huge temple had about a thousand temple prostitutes during that time. So can you imagine all of these people that are coming in from all over the world that aren't around their families anymore, and they go and they see this huge temple to this goddess of Aphrodite with these prostitutes? Can you imagine what was going on in this city at the time? There were even words created with the word Corinth in it to show how bad prostitution was during that time. And so that's what this church here in 1 Corinthians was dealing with. 
And so they had some questions for Paul. They didn't know what to do because people were taking animals and they were sacrificing these animals to these temples. And then guess what they were going and do? They were sort of double dipping a little bit. Well, we'll go and take them and we'll sell them to these meat markets. We'll sell them to the local stands, quality meats, or we'll sell them to the Winn-Dixie, or we'll sell them to the Sam's. That's where the people got their meat during the day on a daily basis. But at the same time, We've got to understand that there was so much of that meat being sold that nobody knew what was actually meat that had been sacrificed to animals and what meat was actually had not been uh, sacrificed to animals. And it was a big deal back then by those that tried to keep the law not to make sure that you you didn't eat that meat. Make sure you don't eat that meat that's been sacrificed to idols. And so this is the situation that Paul is talking about and trying to deal with here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For why? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. So here you are as a believer, because he's talking to believers here, right? In 1 Corinthians, he's talking to the church in Corinth. Here you are as a believer. An unbeliever has invited you to go and eat. Now, an unbeliever obviously could care less whether they get meat from the meat market that has been sacrificed to idols or not. So they've bought this meat, they've invited you to their table, and now the question becomes, is it okay, is it lawful, or is it not for me to eat this meat? And what does Paul say here? Yeah, sure. Don't worry about your conscience, okay? You're fine to eat this meat because ultimately that meat is the Lord's. But then we see something, a little question mark come up with this, right? So continue on. There's a transition here. Remember, always look for those transitions within scriptures. There is a but here. It says in verse 28, it says, But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then what? Do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informs you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. So now all of a sudden, here you are at this unbeliever's house. They have offered this meat to you, but you got your buddy beside you who does, does not know any better, okay? Maybe a, a, a weaker Christian, I would say. That's a bad word, but somebody who's a little bit more uh, immature in the faith, and he sees this meat come out, and he says, hey, psst, hey, that meat's been sacrificed to idols. We can't eat that. And so you could sit there and get in an argument with him right there and say, no, 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 Paul said it was okay. I read his letter. But instead, he's, what is he saying? He's saying, just don't eat it. Don't make that brother stumble. Just let that meat pass. And then the question becomes, okay, well, why is it now all of a sudden that that you said it was okay to eat that meat, but now we we, we can't eat that meat? We're having to, to make that sacrifice not to eat that meat. Well, he answers that question as we continue to look on. Read along with me. Paul asks a couple of questions here. He says, for why should my liberty, why should my freedom be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? 
And he answers the question there in verse 31 to 11.1. What does he say? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do what? Do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So here we are told to abstain from this meat, even though we've been told it's okay, because we don't want our weaker brother here to stumble. And we're doing this what? No matter whether we eat or drink, we're doing it for the glory of the Lord. That's the ultimate reason that we're doing it. We're letting that meat pass for that reason. If that means we have to sacrifice that meal and not eat that meat, then that's okay. But what does that word mean, glory? What does it mean to glorify God? Yes, we say that, but what does it actually mean? Well, in the Hebrew, the word is kavod. In the Greek, the word is doxa. That's where we get the word doxology, the study of glory. And at the very core of this word is this meaning of heaviness, of weight. If you've ever heard somebody is a heavy weight, what does that mean? That means that they are most likely good at what they do. That person is a heavyweight boxer, or that person is a heavyweight in the gym, or that person is a heavyweight at doing whatever it may, it may be that they do. So now all of a sudden you are saying that someone is very good. It carries this weight with you. And that person is a heavy weight. It's somebody that you see as being basically perfect or being very, very good at what they do. And you're going to do everything you can to honor them. You're going to do everything you can to praise them. You're going to do everything that you can to live your life and to glorify them in everything that you do. So let me give it to you this way. This was the best sort of examples that I thought about past couple of weeks that I've been studying this lesson. Let's say that you have a favorite restaurant. I don't know what your favorite restaurant is in Valdosta, but let's say that you have one. Or even, it can, I mean, it can be a restaurant somewhere not in Valdosta. But let's say, let's just take Valdosta for now, narrow it down a little bit. Let's say that your favorite restaurant in Valdosta is Smoking Pig. Let's say that it is Texas Roadhouse. Let's say that it is still Magnolia's. Let's say that it is Friends. Let's say that it is Mama June's. Let's say that it is Taco Bell. Anybody? 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 Let's say that your favorite restaurant is whatever you want it to be, okay? And let's say that it's, it became your favorite restaurant over time, and you went there a few times, and you realized, okay, that's great. But let's say that this is your first time going to this restaurant. Or let's say that it's your second. Whatever it took for you to finally realize that this restaurant is awesome, it's that time, okay? And you're going there to that Texas Roadhouse for the first time, and you're eating those hot rolls, and you've got that cinnamon butter. I know, it's getting close to lunch. I know some people are drooling. Don't worry, there's some tissues in the aisles if you need one. And you're going there to this restaurant for the very first time, and you're eating these hot rolls, and you're eating this cinnamon butter, and man, you think, gosh, this is good. This is really good. Or you go to that Mama June's, and man, you are looking forward to those collard greens, 
and bacon fat and grease and butter and salt and pepper and everything else, and you were just so excited about it. Or you go to that smoking pig and you get that pulled pork and you got that sweet barbecue sauce, which is pretty good. It's good. I like it. And man, you just douse it over that and you eat it. This is awesome. Well, what ends up happening after you leave that restaurant that day? I guarantee you without a shadow of a doubt that you're probably going to go do what? You're probably going to go tell somebody about it. You're probably going to go tell a family member or a friend or a coworker, man, I went and ate the other day at Texas Roadhouse, and man, I love their rolls. I love that pork chop with that brown sauce. I don't even know what it is, but it's good. And then what's going to end up happening to that friend or that family member? They're probably going to go and they're going to try it out themselves. Now, they may not like it. It may not be their favorite restaurant, but they're probably going to at least go and try it out when my buddy talked about how great it was. Or let me give you another example. Let's say that you have decided now, you have kids that are the perfect age for this, and you have decided now you want to go to Disney World. I feel like every family that has kids that age in this church has gone to Disney World this year. It has been like a virus that has infected everybody. Because why? Why has it happened? Well, one, the military must get it for free because they go all the time, right? But why has it happened? Because they've gone down there, they've heard that song, It's a Small World After All, and it has pleased their heart. They have seen the castle, and who doesn't love castles? They have ridden that ferry over. I heard Brian talking the other day to somebody. He said, make sure you ride the ferry over. It just makes the the, the ride more magical and the park more magical. And I was like, oh, my goodness. They've got trash that gets taken out all the time. They've got clean bathrooms. They've even got little things for your kids to play with, games and stuff for your kids to play with while they're waiting in that hour-long line. Isn't that amazing? They just do things well. It's the happiest place on earth, right? And so what happens when you go there? You come back and you tell people about it, don't you? You Say, man, that place was awesome. The look on my kid's face when he was there, it was awesome. I got to relive my childhood. I hadn't been there since I was two actually remember the rides now somewhat, it was amazing. And ultimately, that's you doing what to Disney World? That's you glorifying Disney World, isn't it? Or that's you glorifying Texas Roadhouse or Smoking Pig or whatever it may be. Or let me put a little negative spin, a little negative twist on this just for a second. A little, a, a bad example to this. Let's say that you decided to go see uh, a piece of artwork. Let's say that you decided to go to the Louvre in Paris and you decided to see the Mona Lisa that was done by da Vinci. And let's say that uh, in all accounts, most people would say that that is a very good piece of artwork that nobody in this room can do. It's perfect in some sense. But let's say that you go and you look at this piece of artwork and instead of leaving the Louvre at that time, What you end up doing and saying how awesome and amazing the Mona Lisa was, you go in there and you look at that Mona Lisa and you say, man, Mona is ugly. That's what you say. And what do you do? You take out your paintbrush, you take out your paints, and you decide that you're going to make Mona look good. And then all of a sudden, you take your paintbrushes and you take out your paint. And you go there and I say, oh, I want to give her some curly hair, so I'm going to give her some curly hair. I'm going to give her some earrings. I'm going to put some makeup on Mona because she'd be looking ugly, right? 
And now all of a sudden you go and you take that Mona Lisa and you go in to show your friends, and now what has happened? Well, one, you've been thrown in the jail, right, before you even touch it, and you don't want to be in a jail in Paris. But two, now all of a sudden you have done what? You have put the glory on yourself. Hey, look, look what I've done with Mona. Mona, she was ugly. I gave her some earrings. I put some makeup on her. I gave her some curly hair. She looks beautiful now, man. She was ugly. I don't know what Da Vinci was thinking. And now all of a sudden the glory has gone off the painting. It's gone off of the person who created it, but it's gone on who? Yourself. And that's a struggle we have sometimes, isn't it? Oh, God, you're not the God that I want you to be. You're not the God that... I, I think you should be in the scripture, so therefore, I'm going to take my paintbrushes out and I'm going to make you just a little bit differently. I'm going to change some things about you. I want you to be a God of karma, maybe. What goes around comes around, right, God? Something happens to me, whoever did that, they're going to get it back, right, God? That's the God I want you to be. I want you to be the prosperity gospel God. I want you to be the one man, if I pretend like I really love you and I pray to you and I do all these things, you're going to bless me with money and fame. And as Matt Chandler says, six-pack abs and money flowing out of my pockets. That's what you're going to bless me with. Or, uh, God, I want you to be a legalistic God. i got to work real hard at work in the working world and it gets me a lot of things. Well, I want to be able to work really hard for you and I want it to get me a lot more favor with you. I want it to not only get me more favor with you, but I want it to save me because I want to be in control. I want to do it myself. So you begin to paint that picture of God. And then all of a sudden, the glorification moves away from God, and who does it move on? Me. Yourself. Can you imagine with me just for a second how amazing this world would be if we could glorify the Lord in the ways that we do Disney World or in the ways that we do Smoking Pig or whatever it may be. You know, this lesson has really changed the way uh, I even talk uh, to my son. You know, Bauer, he just got done playing baseball, and I remember I would always make a point to go over to him and say, man, Bauer, you're awesome. You played a great game today. You ran really fast down to that baseline. You did an amazing job. And I began to think about that a little bit as, I, as I'm going through this. The chief end of man, the main purpose of man, is to glorify God. I don't think there's anything wrong with telling my son I did a good job, but is there a way that I can change it just a little bit to put the glory back on the Lord? So the other day, um, I get home from work on a, on a Monday, and I always get Bauer and Groover, and now imagine this, a five-year-old and two-year-old, I always get them to go and get the trash and the recycling bin. I want to teach them responsibility, so we start them young, right? So as soon as I get home, they're usually uh, watching some show or Groover's usually just wandering around the house, whatever may be going on. And I say, boys, go get the trash can and the recycling bin. And Bauer's usually the one who leads it, and he's like, oh, dad. And then Groover's usually looks at Bauer and says, oh, dad. Because he repeats basically whatever his brother does. And I'm like, boys, go. And eventually they'll go. Sometimes I have to bring out a spoon, sometimes I don't. But eventually they go. And it's amazing to see these two boys take that trash can and Bauer pushing that recycling bin down my driveway. It really is. 
But I remember when Bauer got done the other day, instead of telling him how awesome, amazing, and great of a job he did, which is what I typically tell him, I tell him, Bauer, isn't it amazing how God has created you with the muscles to be able to hold that trash can and to be able to walk down here and put that trash can where it belongs? Isn't that amazing? That's awesome. You did an awesome job, and I'm just so glad that God has created you in that way, that he's given you the ability to do that. That's exactly what I said to him. (laughs) No kidding. The first time I did it on Monday, uh, he looked at me, and he sort of had this look of, uh, what is he talking about, confusion, and he's like, huh, and he just sort of walked off. That was sort of his reaction to it. But see, it's just a slight change, but yet now I'm trying to put the glory back to the Lord. And I'm allowing him to hear that and realize and understand that's where the glory should be. Can you imagine with me just for a second what it would look like if we lived our lives that way? Just think about that. Now, in the Old Testament, the glory was shown how? Of God was shown how? It was shown through the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. And in the New Testament, how was that glory shown? It was shown through the incarnation of his son coming in the flesh, fully God, yet fully man, living the perfect sin-free life. But eventually we know that Christ was crucified on the cross, and on the third day he was risen, and he ascended into heaven, and he sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. So now the question becomes, today, for us, how does God show his glory. Guess what? It's by you and me. Those of us in this room that call themselves followers of Jesus Christ, those are the way that God chooses to show His glory. So that means when you see your friend or your family member or whoever it may be the next time, all of a sudden now... You begin to talk about God better than smoking pig. You begin to talk about God better than you do Disney World. You begin to talk about God better than even you do your own children. Now all of a sudden, God becomes supreme in your life. He gets the glory. Why? Because he is a loving, just, righteous, holy God. And he encompasses all of those things, what? Perfectly. And there is no one greater on this earth. Yes, I'm talking about even your children. There is no one greater on this earth than he. He has changed your life. He's the one who has saved you. He is the one who has sent the power of his Holy Spirit to indwell you so that you have the ability to be image bearers and to reflect him in everything that you do. Can you imagine what it would be like with me just for a second if you talked about God in the way that you talked about the meal that you're going to go eat here in just a second? Just think how much of a change that would be. Can you imagine if you and me did that? Two, three hundred, four hundred, however many people we have in here. If you began to talk about God in that way, we would not be able to contain everybody in this room. Because you're showing, you're proving that God is the greatest thing in your life. It's not the food. 
That God is the greatest thing in your life. It's not Mickey Mouse. That God is the greatest thing in your life. It's not your kids. No, it's God. And He is amazing. And He is awesome. And He is righteous. And He is worthy to be praised. So whether I eat or drink or whatever I do, I am going to give glory to Him and Him alone. And His name is going to be above all other names. Can you imagine with me just for a second? We're Baptists. We love revivals. Can you imagine the revival that would take place in this church if we began to talk about God better than smoking pig? I can't imagine it. But so many times, so many times we get so caught up on the negatives that we forget how amazing God truly is. Oh, well, man, we've been through some rough things. Yeah. Okay, maybe this church has in the past, but we're through that, and it was nothing like the church in Corinth was going through. Nothing. Oh, well, the air conditioner wasn't working on Sunday. Okay, it wasn't, but at least you got a place to meet. At least you're not being persecuted. Can you imagine the amount of people that would want to come visit his church that his son died for? That's how much he loved it. If every single one of us in this room, myself included, began to talk about it like we do our own children. That's what it means to glorify God. That's what it means to hold His name above all other names. You've got to stop taking your paintbrushes out and trying to make God who you want Him to be. God is perfect. God is holy. God is righteous. You have no ability or no right to change him because he is who he is. And it's much greater than we will ever be. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, make sure that you bring glory to the Lord. Bow your heads with me and let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much, God just for everything that you have given us, everything that you have done for us, Lord. I thank you, Lord, for your great reminder within the book of Exodus and within 1 Corinthians. And Lord, I pray that we would be a church that would glorify you in everything that we do, God. That we would be a church, God, that would desire, Lord, to talk about you better than anything else in our life, God. That we would be a church, God, that would seek, Lord, to find people that don't know you, God, and need to hear about you, and that, Lord, we would tell them about the God who has absolutely changed our lives. God, may we be a church here at Perimeter Road that does that. May we be a church here in Perimeter Road that God desires to reach those that are lost and that don't know you, and that we would talk well about you and your name and how you have changed our lives. God, I pray that you would be with us in that and that you would keep us bold in that and that you would give us the strength to do that in our lives. Because God, you are an amazing God and your name is worthy to be praised. We pray this in your son's precious name through the power of the Holy Spirit and by the grace of God.